Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you, as always, for listening. In the last episode of our series on the Meiji Restoration, we watched as the last of the shogunate-affiliated resistance was stamped out in Japan, and the young Emperor Meiji and his government began the work of the Restoration in earnest. The leaders of the Meiji Restoration recognized the need to create a strong, modernized, and centralized nation-state in order to contend with the foreign powers who had so humiliated them over the past two decades. To this end, the Meiji government pursued a wide number of policies. One of the earliest and most drastic measures taken by the Meiji government was the 1869 abolition of the 250-year Bakufu Han system, followed by the abolition of feudalism itself three years later. Measures were taken to effectively render inert the entire samurai class, including the creation of a standing army composed entirely of conscripts from among both the peasant and former samurai classes. Hereditary privileges were more or less done away with. No longer could one acquire a government officialdom by right of one's bloodline. Rather, it came down to one's innate ability. The abolition of the domains was heralded as one of the most significant steps taken by the Meiji government towards modernization, but it also created a new social class of impoverished former samurai, many of whom were enraged at the loss of their traditional rights and privileges. It was worried that a nationwide rebellion of these former samurai would take place in response, and while such a thing failed to materialize on a nationwide level, there were a number of localized rebellions by former samurai across Japan. The first significant one of these took place in Saga Prefecture in 1874. To explain this, we'll need to backtrack a little bit. In 1873, there was a diplomatic incident between Japan and Korea, wherein many Japanese felt that Korea had impunged their country's national honor. Many segments of Japanese society began to agitate for war against the upstart Koreans. One of the biggest advocates for war against Korea was Satsuma samurai Saigo Takamori, hero of the Boshin War. Saigo believed that this war would be the best solution to the social problems that Japan was now facing. In conscripting the disaffected former samurai into the ranks of the Imperial Japanese Army and sending them off to fight against a common foe, these men could be given a new sense of purpose and national pride. However, Saigo's proposal was shot down by his fellow government officials, and subsequently, he and a number of his supporters resigned from the government in protest. One of these followers, a man named Eto Shinpei, returned home to his native Saga prefecture to see a storm brewing. Two political parties of former samurai had been formed there, and while they had their own disagreements, they both agreed on two central things. One, that Korea had to be punished for their insolence, and two, that they wished to see the reinstatement of traditional rights and privileges of the samurai class. When Eto Shinpei returned home, he soon found himself leading both parties in an armed rebellion against the Meiji government. The rebels were hopelessly outnumbered, and the rebellion was crushed in a matter of days. Eto Shinpei himself was arrested and executed for his part in the rebellion. The Saga Rebellion was the first armed rebellion of the former samurai class against the Meiji government, but it would by no means be the last. Two edicts issued in 1866, one which prohibited samurai from carrying swords in public, and another which officially ended the hereditary samurai stipend from the government, all but assured further resistance to the government among the members of the former samurai class. Meanwhile, the modernization of Japan was continuing steadily apace. Telegraph lines and railroad tracks were connecting Japan's major cities. Shipyards, ironworks, munitions factories, and other heavy industrial facilities were in the process of construction. 
The textile industry was one that was of particular interest to the foreign powers, and it was able to generate the revenue necessary to fund all these other new infrastructure projects. The lot of the average Japanese citizen was gradually beginning to improve as the economy slowly recovered, but poverty was still widespread among the members of the former samurai class. What's more, not everyone in Japanese society approved of all these modernizing changes. In the former domain of Kumamoto, on the island of Kyushu, a reactionary political party known as the Shinpuren was formed, under the leadership of one Otaguro Tomo, a Shinto priest. The men of the Shinpuren were not only distraught at the loss of their traditional rights and privileges as samurai, but they were also vehemently opposed to the efforts of modernization and westernization. As author Donald Keane points out, the Shinpuren would not be content with halting the spread of Western influence. Rather, they wished to eradicate every last trace of it. Their ire at the government was raised by the 1876 edicts which lifted the traditional Japanese prohibition on Christianity, and the aforementioned edict which banned samurai from carrying swords in public. What finally pushed the men of the Shinpuren over the edge, however, was a rumor that Emperor Meiji was planning a trip abroad. On October 24th, the men of the Shinpuren staged an uprising in their native Kumamoto. They were all armed with traditional samurai weapons such as swords and spears. So great was their opposition to modernization that they refused to avail themselves of advanced weaponry, such as rifles and cannons. The some 200 men of the Shinpuren, in the dead of night, split up into multiple attack groups. One group attacked the Kumamoto garrison, where the soldiers of the Imperial Japanese Army were caught in the midst of sleep. The Shinpuren samurai were absolutely merciless in their attack, slaughtering or mortally wounding some 300 soldiers in their attack. It has been suggested that the knowledge of the soldiers' peasant backgrounds urged on the bloodlust of the Shinpuren samurai, who were more than happy to kill these peasant men who had usurped their former role in society. Meanwhile, another squad of Shinpuren samurai attacked the telegraph office and cut off communication with the outside world to delay a retaliation from the government. The final attack group was tasked with assassinating the government and army leadership of the prefecture. They attacked the homes of the governor, Yasuoka Ryosuke, commander of the garrison, General Taneda Masaki, and his chief of staff, Colonel Takashima Shigenori. They were successful in killing Takashima and Taneda, while Yasuoka was mortally wounded. Their houses were burnt to the ground along with the army barracks. At first, it seemed that these rebels, having acted with the element of surprise, may have been successful. However, it was not long before the remainder of the garrison at Kumamoto was able to rally a defense. The rebels, with their inferior numbers and outdated weapons, did not stand a chance against the soldiers of the Imperial Japanese Army. Over 200 of the rebels were gunned down in the ensuing fight. Many of the survivors fled the scene and submitted seppuku, their leader, Otoguro Tomo, among them. All told, 173 Shinpuren samurai were killed or committed suicide in the short course of the rebellion. Word of the Shinpuren Rebellion spread through the country quickly, and it ultimately inspired two further rebellions against the Meiji government. The first of these took place mere days later, in the former domain of Akizuki. This former samurai had been in contact with the Shinpuren rebels of Kumamoto, and when they informed them of their intention to stage an uprising, about 200 former samurai of the Akizuki domain decided to march off to Kumamoto to join them. The Imperial Army caught wind of their plan, however, and intercepted the rebel force as it was en route. Several of the rebels were killed, and the rest ran off into the hills, where they were arrested over the course of the next month. 
The second rebellion, inspired by the Shinpuren, took place at roughly the same time in Hagi, the former seat of the Choshu domain. Its leader was Meibara Issei, a hero of the Choshu expeditions and of the Boshin War. Meibara and 200 of his men planned an attack on the prefectural capital of Yamaguchi in support of the rebels in Kumamoto. However, the governor of Yamaguchi was tipped off to the rebels' plan ahead of time, and he called out the army. Realizing that the current plan was doomed, Meibara decided to instead take his men secretly along the coast to Tokyo, and once there, they would present their case to the emperor and commit seppuku at his feet in order to prove their point. The rebels were frustrated in this attempt and were all arrested and executed. While the direct cause of these rebellions can be directly attributed to the recent actions of the government, some decision-makers in the government sought a scapegoat, and they ultimately placed the blame on Saigo Takamori. Indeed, some of these rebel leaders had sought out Saigo's support for their uprisings, which he refused to give them. But it cannot be said that Saigo was in any real sense directly responsible for them. Still, the Meiji government was beginning to look at the social conditions in the former Satsuma domain with increasing concern. Saigo had been keeping quite busy despite his ostensible retirement from the political sphere and his terminal illness. In June of 1874, he founded a private school on the outskirts of Kagoshima, former seat of the Satsuma domain. The students of this school were to be young former samurai, veterans of the Boshin War who had previously fought under Saigo's command. This school was much unlike those in the reformed Japanese education system, which was now open to all classes and provided a broad curriculum that included studies of Western subjects. The education received by Saigo's students was a traditional samurai education, that is to say, studies focused on the traditional Chinese classics, on the art of war, and samurai tradition. The school, it has been noted, more and more came to resemble a political party in time. Many in the former Satsuma domain were beginning to conceive of Satsuma as a more or less independent country, in opposition to the modernization efforts of the central government. Needless to say, these developments began to cause great concern to government officials, and they began to move to put an end to the samurai-led Satsuma separatist movement before it could begin in earnest. But they were already too late. In December 1867, the government dispatched an agent named Nakahara Hisao to Kagoshima to investigate the potentially seditious goings-on at Saigo's private school. It wasn't long before Officer Nakahara was captured by some students, who accused him of being a government assassin sent to kill Saigo Takamori. Nakahara confessed to this under pain of torture, although he later recanted his confession, most everyone in Kagoshima believed that it was true. With tensions in Kagoshima already at a fever pitch, the government feared that armed rebellion was imminent. In early 1867, they attempted to remove the caches of weapons stored in the Kagoshima arsenal. This prompted a group of students to stage an attack on the arsenal to seize the weapons within it. Further attacks by students on government property resulted in the seizure of the city's munitions factory and naval shipyard, and the students promptly began to oversee the manufacture of new weapons and ammunition. As these disturbing reports began to reach Tokyo, the government then dispatched an official of the Interior Ministry, Hayashi Tomoyuki, to the scene aboard the warship Takao Maru. Hayashi arrived at Kagoshima on February 9th and met with the prefectural governor, Oyama Suniyoshi. Oyama was just as eager to defuse the situation as Hayashi was, and their first meeting aboard the warship was productive. However, as soon as the governor departed, eight small wooden boats, packed to the brim with armed samurai, attempted to board the warship. The captain was able to maneuver the ship out of harm's way just in time, and the samurai fled the scene. Hayashi related word of the attempted attack on the Takaomaru to Tokyo, where it was interpreted as an act of war. 
the Imperial Japanese Army was mobilized, and some 50,000 soldiers were called up to march on Kagoshima to put down the rebellion before it could spread to other prefectures. In command of the army was Arisugawa Taruhito, under whom Saigo had served as chief of staff during the Boshin War. The Satsuma Rebellion had begun. There is no evidence that suggests that Saigo himself had any part in instigating this rebellion. In fact, quite the contrary, it would seem that events got too far ahead of him too quickly. Upon hearing of the attacks in the Kagoshima arsenal, he is said to have uttered a curse on the attackers. After the failed attack on the Takao Maru, Saigo met with two of his generals, Kinro Toshiaki and Shinohara Kunimoto, to discuss their next move. We've actually introduced Kinro before, way back in episode 2 of this series. He was one of the famed four Hitokiri of the Bakumatsu, that group of assassins who had carried out a campaign of terroristic assassinations in Kyoto back in 1863 in the name of the Emperor. He, unlike his three companions, had escaped the Executioner's Blade and became a general in the army of Satsuma. He had won fame during the Boshin War as the man who induced the Aizu Domain to surrender. Anyway, Saigo met with Kinro and Shinohara to discuss their strategy. Both of them advised Saigo to march on Tokyo straight away. Saigo had his gripes with the government to be sure, but he was reluctant to go into open rebellion. But he also knew that at this point, his men would not stand down. He felt he had no other choice but to go to war. Even as he led his troops out of Kagoshima, Saigo had no ultimate aim in mind, and no strategy by which to accomplish it. The army of Satsuma numbered 30,000 to the imperial army's 50,000. Half of the Satsuma men were students of Saigo's school, veterans of the Boshin War. The other half of Saigo's army consisted of former samurai from other domains across the island of Kyushu. As the army departed Kagoshima, the region was beset by a heavy snowstorm, the first such occurrence in temperate Kyushu since the soldiers of Satsuma had marched off to fight in the Battle of Tobofushimi nine years prior. This was interpreted as a good omen. As Saigo and his army prepared for war, Army Minister Yamagata Aritomo sent a message to the commander of the army, Prince Taruhito. He predicted that Saigo might follow one of three strategies. Firstly, he may use his navy to launch a raid on Tokyo. Secondly, he might march on the garrison of Kumamoto to secure his control over the entire island of Kyushu. Thirdly, he may simply hole up in Kagoshima and bide his time until the other sections of the country similarly rose up in rebellion. Of these, Yamagata predicted that the second of the three scenarios was the most likely. He was correct in this assumption. Saigo's army crossed the border into Kumamoto Prefecture on February 14th. That same day, the emperor issued an edict ordering the punishment of the rebels. The Kumamoto garrison did not try to fight the rebels in the open field. They were outnumbered and, more importantly, greatly intimidated by the formidable Saigo Takamori. They holed up inside the castle and hoped to hold out against the enemy until reinforcements could arrive from the east. Saigo sent word ahead of the main body of the army to the commander of the government forces, General Tani Tatayaki, encouraging him to surrender. He refused. The first shots of the siege of Kumamoto were fired on February 19th, as a vanguard of Satsuma troops attempted to force their way into the castle only to be repelled. The rest of the army arrived on the 22nd, and once more they attempted to breach the walls of the castle, only to be repelled once again. Saigo and his army resigned themselves to a drawn-out siege. In their estimation, it wouldn't be too long before the defenders gave up, as their stores of food and ammunition had been greatly depleted by a warehouse fire five days earlier. As they took up permanent positions around the castle, thousands of former Kumamoto samurai defected to Satsuma, swelling the rebel army's ranks. However, the Satsuma Rebellion quickly lost momentum. 
Saigo's cause did not enjoy the widespread support of the masses that he had hoped to secure, likely because, as of yet, Saigo's stated objective was a vague aim to, quote, go to Tokyo and ask some questions of the imperial government, end quote. Saigo's plan had counted on him being able to reach Tokyo without any major military confrontation, and the prolonged siege of Kumamoto provided the imperial army with ample opportunity to dispatch forces to catch up with him. On March 8th, a month into the siege, the Imperial Navy captured Kagoshima, which Saigo had left undefended. By March 3rd, the main body of the Imperial Army had reached the outskirts of Kumamoto. Hoping to hold them off, Saigo moved the bulk of his army to Tabaruzaka, a hill some 20 miles north of the castle. The hill provided the rebels with a position from which they could defend against the numerically superior government forces. The bloody battle of Tabaruzaka raged on for 18 whole days. The Imperial Army's technological advantage showed when a torrential rain rendered the rebel army's antiquated muskets effectively useless. The rebels instead fought with melee weapons, and managed to inflict severe casualties on the Imperial forces. Over 4,000 rebels and 4,000 government soldiers perished in the course of the battle. It was recorded that the fighting was so intense that the dead bodies of rebel soldiers blocked the Imperial forces' egress, and that the moat of Kumamoto Castle ran red with blood. Finally, on March 20th, the Imperial Army was able to break through the rebel lines and seize the hill, putting the rebel army to flight. In spite of their defeat, the Satsuma forces were able to maintain the siege of Kumamoto Castle for another three weeks. Still, the victory of the Imperial Army had shifted the tide of the war. The rebel offensive had turned into a protracted siege, and the once animated rebel soldiers had become demoralized. It was only Saigo's masterful leadership that prevented the army from splitting off and going its separate ways. Saigo first led his men to the town of Hiroyoshi, and next to the town of Miyazaki, all along the way subjecting the pursuing government forces to small-scale guerrilla attacks. On August 17th, the rebel army, tired of running, posted up on the slope of Mount Enodake. It was thought that this would be their last stand. At this point, the rebel army numbered around 3,000 men against an enemy force seven times their size. The rebels fought bravely, but they ultimately stood no chance. The vast majority of them were killed or committed seppuku before they could be captured. But in the midst of the combat, Saigo and 500 of his most trusted men slipped out from imperial lines and made for Kagoshima. Saigo snuck into the city and, after putting his final affairs in order and bidding farewell to his two beloved pet dogs, he and his army took the hill of Shiroyama, a hill overlooking the city. Saigo's old commander Taruhito sent a message to him, practically begging him to surrender but Saigo still refused. It was on this hill that he would make his last stand. The hour came on September 24th as Taruhito ordered a frontal assault on the rebel positions. Surprisingly, they were pushed back initially, but the defenders suffered grave casualties. Their numbers reduced to only 40. Saigo, along with his remaining men, lined up in battle formation and charged the enemy. Many of them were mowed down by rifle fire. Saigo, hit but still alive, was carried by Kinro Toshiaki to a secluded location where he committed seppuku. Kinro carried out his duties as the Kaishakunin, the man who beheads one committing seppuku. He then took his general's head and hid it where he believed the enemy could never find it. Kinro was subsequently found by Imperial soldiers and executed. With Saigo's death, the Satsuma Rebellion ended. The Satsuma Rebellion traditionally demarcates the end of the period known as the Meiji Restoration. It was the last gasp of the dispossessed samurai class against the government that it felt had betrayed them. 
As historian Romulus Hillsborough writes of the rebellion, quote, Unlike revolutions throughout history, including the Meiji Restoration itself, theirs was not a rebellion to eliminate the old and create a new government. It was, rather, a battle to the death with the relentless and powerful tide of history, which had rendered their way of life, and indeed most of their cherished values, obsolete, end quote. For his role in the Setsuma Rebellion, just as much for his role in the Meiji Restoration in the Boshin War, Saigo Takamori has been lauded as somewhat of a folk hero in Japan, even to this day. Many see his brave, if misguided, rebellion as admirable. Emperor Meiji, for his part, despaired at the betrayal of one of his most loyal subjects. He was quite sympathetic to Saigo, and had him posthumously pardoned in 1889. As if to cement the end of the era, concurrent to the Setsuma Rebellion, the two other so-called great nobles of the Restoration, the men who were most instrumental in overseeing the Meiji Restoration, Okubo Toshimichi and Kido Takeyoshi, both died. Kido succumbed to tuberculosis on May 26, 1877, and Okubo was assassinated by a disgruntled former samurai on May 14th. Coincidentally, the location of Okubo's assassination was mere feet away from the Sakurada Gate, where Regent Ei Naosuke had been assassinated nearly 20 years earlier. With the deaths of Saigo, Okubo, and Kido, a new generation of leadership had its chance to work its way into the Meiji government. They would go about finishing the work that the three great nobles had started. They would oversee the final stages of Japan's transformation into a modern centralized nation-state. The economy recovered as the country continued to industrialize. By the time of Emperor Meiji's death, the Japanese state was capable of challenging the nations of the West in terms of industrial capacity. Political reform also continued apace. The Meiji government adopted a constitution in 1889. The Meiji constitution was based on the models provided by Germany and Britain. Per the constitution, the emperor held supreme power as the head of state, but his duties were mainly relegated to matters of foreign affairs and diplomacy, as well as supreme command of the nation's armed forces. A prime minister, selected by the emperor's privy council, was to serve as the head of government. Domestic policy was, by and large, to be handled by the imperial diet, a bicameral legislature consisting of an upper house of peers and a lower house of representatives. The house of peers, much like the British House of Lords, was to consist of high-ranking nobles, many of whom were former daimyo. The House of Representatives was to be directly elected, but per the terms of the Constitution, this electorate was quite small. Only 1% of the population was eligible to vote. The Constitution also provided some limited rights to Japanese citizens, such as the right to private property and freedom of speech, assembly, and association. On the whole, the Meiji Constitution sorted out the perennial issue of government and created a sort of hybrid between a constitutional and absolutist monarchy. The system of government put in place by the Meiji Constitution would remain until the Constitution of 1947 was ratified, creating a liberal democratic system of government with an almost completely powerless monarch. In terms of foreign affairs, Japan would soon find its place under the sun, so to speak. During Emperor Meiji's lifetime, thanks to a series of military interventions in China, Japan would soon forge an extensive empire, including the Ryukyu Archipelago, Taiwan, and even Korea. Japan demonstrated the might of its economic and military strength to the developed world during the Russo-Japanese War. In 1905, a series of territorial disputes led Japan and Russia to go to war with one another. The modernized Japanese military was not only able to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with their Russian foes, but the Japanese easily dealt with the Russians one embarrassing defeat after another. The result was that Japan was able to secure its hold on the Korean Peninsula and extend its influence into modern China. By the time the First World War broke out, two years following the death of Emperor Meiji, Japan was considered enough of a geopolitical power broker in Asia 
that Britain invited them to join the war on the side of the Entente powers. At the Paris Peace Conference, which ended that conflict, Japanese delegates sat alongside the leaders of Britain, France, America, and Italy. Japan had truly cemented its status as a great power on the world stage. So, since this period was intended to give only a narrative of the Meiji Restoration and not of the entire Meiji era, it seems to me that it would now be appropriate to give some concluding remarks for the series. So, in conclusion, the Meiji Restoration is an absolutely fascinating period of history to me. It is difficult to overstate the importance that these events had on the course of Japanese history. In only two decades, Japan transformed itself from a feudal backwater, isolated on the edge of the known world, and in danger of falling prey to the colonial machinations of the Western powers, into a modern, centralized, and industrialized nation-state that was capable of commanding respect and projecting power on the global stage. And to think that this whole chain of events was only kicked off because the United States wanted a trade agreement. If only Commodore Perry had known of the long-term effects that his fateful venture in gunboat diplomacy would have initiated. Indeed, the arrival of the American fleet in Edo Bay in 1853 precipitated a crisis in Japan that was precedented only by the Mongol invasions of the 13th century. Japanese society was deeply divided as to how to respond to the foreign provocation, with opposing camps rallying behind the emperor and shogun respectively. As we all know by this point, the imperial faction ultimately won this power struggle, deposing the shogunate and restoring political power to the emperor. From there, the emperor used his new position to enact a number of highly significant reforms to Japan's society, culture, politics, military, and economy that were nothing short of revolutionary. It isn't for nothing that some scholars have argued that a better term for this period may in fact be Meiji Revolution. However, history is not predetermined. That the imperial faction would emerge victorious from this internal power struggle was by no means a given. As we have seen, there were some points during the narrative when it seemed that they may have well been defeated. How exactly the history of Japan would have developed in the event of a shogunate victory is left only for us to speculate upon, an interesting counterfactual, and truly nothing more. As we all know, the success of the Meiji Restoration set Japan down a path that destined it for its final confrontation with China and the United States in the Second World War, but that is a story for another day and another series. Not only is the period of the Meiji Restoration endlessly fascinating on a macro-historical sense, but it is on a micro-level as well. The story of the Meiji Restoration is a story of political intrigue, epic battles, compelling characters, and wide-ranging social changes. It is my sincere hope that you have enjoyed this in-depth journey to this tumultuous period of Japanese history. It has been my honor to be your guide through it. I'd very much been looking forward to releasing this series ever since I wrote the initial script all the way back in winter of 2021. Anyway, with all that having been said, it seems I should end here for now. But before I conclude for good, I'd like to ask the audience, what fascinates you about the Meiji Restoration? Are there any details or aspects of the story that you feel that I left out or did not sufficiently explain? Furthermore, do you have any recommendations for topics, not necessarily related to the Meiji Restoration or Japan in general, that you would like to see the podcast cover in the future? If you have anything along these lines that you'd wish to communicate to me or other more general questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. I can also be reached via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you like the show and would like to help support it financially, you can do so, either by becoming a supporter on Patreon, or by purchasing some used books for me on eBay. Links to both of these can be found in the episode description. Anyway, be sure to tune in again in two weeks as we begin a new series of episodes. 
For this series, we will be going back to the 4th century CE to cover the life and times of the Roman Emperor Flavius Claudius Julianus, better known to history as Julian the Apostate. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'd like to thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Bill Connor, signing off. Oh, 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 oh,